Please remain standing with me for the reading of God's word, at the end of which I will say this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. We're reading today from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition, tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Man, well, thank you, Pastor Pat, for reading for us. I also heard a rumor that today uh, might be Pastor Pat's birthday. <clears throat> well, happy birthday, brother, on behalf of me and the King's Church. Thanks for all the ways that you uh, enrich us and encourage us uh, in the faith. So, to our pastor who is the senior, which is his official title, uh, be sure to wish him a happy birthday. All right, at this time, if you are in our preschool Kingdom Kids class, you guys can be dismissed. You can come on over to this side. 
and uh, meet your teachers over there. Uh, if you are in kindergarten and up, uh, you're hanging out with us today. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, just a reminder, parents, if you guys want need anything, feel free to grab a clipboard uh, to follow along with the sermon, draw pictures. Uh, I always love the visual representations of the preacher after I'm done preaching, so uh, feel free to draw a nice, beautiful, bald man, and I'll come and uh, take a look at it afterward. Uh, but feel free to use that in the connection room. All right, well, today we are jumping into Mark chapter 7, and there is, as uh, Pat just read for us, a bit of a disagreement going on between uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus, and the disagreement is over the issue of cleanliness, over the issue of cleanliness. Now, our world at large has been thinking uh, quite a bit more about cleanliness uh, since about March of 2020, haven't we? Uh, the remnants of the early days of the pandemic are still kind of around, like you'll still go into places that have all the signs up from like June of 2020, right? They're like, okay, make sure you socially distance, right? Like you're encouraged to wear the mask. Uh, there's hand sanitizer like everywhere, right? And it's always out, by the way. You ever notice that? You're like, oh, there's hand sanitizer. Uh, it's out. It's always out. Never has it. Uh, there is uh, just an emphasis on cleanliness right now. I also think a lot about cleanliness in my own home because I have three children. Uh, their ages are five, three, and one, so cleanliness is a moment-by-moment -moment situation. Uh, I have one child. I'll let you just guess who these are if you know me. I have one child who, at the moment anything gets on their hands or on their face, a small panic attack begins within them. They're like, I, there's something on me. Please remove it. And then I have another one who looks like he has just gone through World War II with his food. And he doesn't care. He's come out victorious. I mean, he is head to toe covered in it. Uh, but this issue of cleanliness is kind of an everyday reality for us. But especially related to those COVID things, uh, whatever you think of those measures, the issue here was that we were encouraged to pay close attention to external cleanliness to guard against an infection. But when we read the scriptures, we're all confronted with an uncomfortable reality that cleanliness is not just an external issue. Instead, the scriptures tell us that internally, our hearts are unclean and they are stained with sin. And listen, deep down this morning, if we are honest with ourselves, if we do not suppress the truth, we know this reality firsthand, don't we? There is something within us that just is not right. There is a stain that sin leaves that we can't seem to cleanse on our own. We are not the way that we should be as human beings. And the danger of this passage is to then take that problem and apply external solutions. It'd be the same thing as just saying, well, as long as we take care of all these external things, then internally I'll avoid infection. I'll be okay. And this interaction with Jesus and the religious leaders is going to confront us with the foolishness of that kind of thinking. So this morning, here's our main idea from the text. Jesus diagnoses the source of our sin and provides the solution to our uncleanness. Jesus diagnoses the source of our sin and provides the solution to our uncleanness. Before we jump into God's word, let's pray together and ask him to bless our time. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we do come before you this morning as a needy people. We're in need of a reminder of the gospel. We're in need of a reminder of the truth about ourselves and our condition. And most importantly, we are in need of a reminder of the goodness and the greatness of our Savior Jesus. 
So Holy Spirit, this morning, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Help us to behold the glory of your Son, and may his kindness draw us to repentance, to gratitude, to a greater worship, and ultimately to a place of true and lasting cleansing. Help us as we consider these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this issue of uncleanness has two distinct approaches uh, about how to solve it, okay? There's two distinct approaches that you can go about trying to solve this issue of being unclean. Uh, To make it very simple, there is an outside-in model, and then there's an inside-out model. If you're confused by that, hopefully I will do my job this morning and make that clear. But we're going to look at the outside-in strategy of the religious leaders and talk about why that falls short. And then we're going to see the inside-out dynamic of the gospel and see why that is really what we need. So let's begin by looking at these outside-in traditions. Look back at the text with me at Mark 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is, unwashed. Now, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, haven't shown up since chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. And things were a little contentious between Jesus and the religious leaders, to say the least, back then. In chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees, uh, it is said of Mark, went out and plotted with the Herodians, their sworn enemies, how to destroy Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 22, the scribes look at all that Jesus is doing and they say, you know what? You must be possessed by Satan. So this is not like old friends reuniting. I mean, things are contentious. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere in the text, they show up from Jerusalem. They gather around Jesus and then they begin to nitpick at his disciples. And the overarching issue is cleanliness. They're upset over the fact that the disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. They accuse them of being defiled. Now, importantly, this is not a debate over hygiene. It's a wise idea, and I would recommend to you and to all of yours to wash your hands at least a few times a day. It's a good idea before you eat, right? There's nothing wrong with cleanliness in that way, but the debate here is not over hygiene. The issue is over ritual purity, and I'm going to need you to stay with me, okay? There's coffee in the connection room. we got to explain what the, it's like an inside joke, and if you're not like in on the inside joke, you're like, what's going on? That's kind of what this text is like, okay? So let me explain what's going on with this ritual purity. Being clean or unclean was a big deal for the Jewish people. We've seen this already in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us. Things like contact with the dead, uh, leprosy infectious disease, bodily discharges of all kinds, coming in contact with or eating an unclean animal. All of these things and more would make you ceremonially unclean according to the law of the Old Testament. Now, being unclean in and of itself was not sinful, though it could be a result of sin. There are sometimes it is just simply unavoidable, but here's the big deal. If you were in a state of being unclean, then you could not go to the temple and you could not worship with God's people. And often, if you touched other people when you were unclean, they themselves would also become unclean by association. Now, I think it's worth pausing for a moment 
and asking the question, what exactly is the purpose of these laws? I mean, if we're honest, they can feel a bit arbitrary and archaic at times, can't they? Why essentially does the book of Leviticus live in our Bible? Like, what's going on? Why is that God's word? Why is it in there? All right, let me see if I can explain that. While affirming that these laws are indeed strange, they're actually telling a critical part of the bigger story of the Bible. You see, these ceremonial laws that deal with rituals and cleanness and purity are trying to communicate the holiness of God. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the book of Leviticus in one line, and I know that's what you came for this morning, so I'm going to give you that information, okay? The book of Leviticus in one line is, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? How does that arrangement work? That's what Leviticus is answering. And these ritual purity laws were made to create this awareness that God is holy, but also he can be dangerous. He's kind of like the sun, right? The sun is both good and essential for life, isn't it? But yet, if you go outside and stare at the sun the rest of the day, which I would not recommend doing, don't do that, kids, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. God must be approached with reverence. These laws are telling us that humans are unclean, and we cannot go before the presence of a holy and perfect God without first being cleansed, without first there being purification. And ultimately, as we read those laws in the Old Testament, hear this, they are a physical representation of a deeper spiritual reality. Physically being unclean was meant to point to the truth that we are spiritually unclean. We are in need not just of outer cleansing, but of inner purification if we are ever to be in fellowship with God, but sin has caused there to be a barrier. Sin has caused there to be a fracture. Now, back to Mark 7. The debate here with the religious leaders is over that concept. How do we have fellowship with God? How do we relate to Him as an unholy people? And this disagreement is going to show us that there are two fundamental problems with the Pharisees and the scribes in their approach to these laws. They jump right out in the text. The first problem is this. They elevated the commandments and traditions of men with the Word of God. They elevated the commandments and the traditions of men with the word of God. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, why don't your disciples hold to the tradition of the elders? Why do they eat with defiled hands? Well, then we get some context in verse 3. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, and dining couches. See, under the influence of the Pharisees, there were uh, fairly elaborate customs and rituals and regulations that were expected of all observant Jews in this time period. So before anyone ate food, you had to wash your hands. When you would come from the marketplace, where all those sinful, dirty, unclean people might be hanging out, well, you better wash up, because who knows what you came into contact with. In fact, verse 4, it says when they come from the marketplace, they wash. That word wash is literally baptize in the Greek. Uh, it's a different kind of baptism, but it's telling what that word is. When you come back from the marketplace, you better baptize yourself in a cleansing. And this extended to all sorts of other things. Cups, pitchers, kettles, 
all of those things could come in contact with just surfaces that would contain unclean items, and it would transfer the uncleanliness to them. Uh, pottery was prone to unclean things because uh, it was porous, right? Things could infiltrate it. Even dining couches is on the list. Uh, they would have been a soft surface, and anything, uh, how do I put this lightly, anyone who had any sort of human discharge, intentional, unintentional, of course, could sit on that couch, and then that couch is defiled, so make sure you clean the couch. Are you getting the idea? The list is meant to sound a bit ridiculous. Because here's the problem, brothers and sisters, none of these things are in the Old Testament. If you ask the Jewish religious leaders, okay, show us how we are defiled from the Bible, they could not do so. You see, priests, they were told to wash their hands. But that was before they went to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people in the tabernacle or the temple. Now that makes sense. They're a mediator. If you're going to go before the presence of the Lord, you had better be purified. You had better be washed. That makes sense. But washing as a ritual purity before every single meal for all of God's people is not what is in the Old Testament. See, these regulations for washing came from something else. They came from the traditions of the elders, as described in this text. And the traditions of the elders is a work called the Mishnah. Everybody, let's say Mishnah together. Ready? Mishnah. Very good. The Mishnah was a long-standing oral tradition that was eventually written down and codified a couple hundred years before Christ. And the Mishnah itself, its self-proclaimed purpose was to put a fence around the Torah. Now think about what a fence does, right? A fence is designed to keep you out of an area that you are not supposed to be in, right? So my, uh, my parents have a pool, which is lots of fun with uh, my kids. Uh, my first two kids really had no issue with the pool or anything like that, but then came Noah, our third, right? And Noah, like he's the one that is like making a beeline for traffic at all times, okay? And so when Noah came along, it was clear we needed a fence, right? We needed to physically barricade him from his own worst impulses, okay? That's what a fence does. It protects you from going somewhere you're not supposed to be. So the Mishnah said, okay, if this is what it means to break God's law, then let's back it up a few paces and stick a fence right there. That way, we're staying even further away from breaking what that law might be. Do you get the idea? That's the purpose of the Mishnah. Now, the intent behind that may have been righteous and good, but here's the problem. They started treating the fence line as God's word. They started treating breaking the extra line that they added as equivalent with breaking the law of God. And the Pharisees, to put it bluntly, became obsessed with these laws. 25% of the Mishnah dealt with cleanliness laws and rituals. Brothers and sisters, anytime we start drawing lines where God has not drawn lines, we will run into problems. The fence that was to ensure the people never broke God's law actually led them to miss the whole point. When you build fences around the law, you end up getting further and further away from the law itself. And this is why Jesus has a scathing interaction here. I mean, do you feel the intensity of this section? I mean, he tells them three verbs. You leave the commandment of God. You reject the commandment of God, and you make void the word of God. Now, don't forget who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the religious elite. 
He is talking to the extra super holy people, to borrow from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I mean, these are the righteous. These are, by all of society's standards, the people we should be following. And he's looking at them and he's telling them, you think you speak for God, but you are sharing man-made ideas, and in fact, you're transgressing the law of God that you have memorized and that you think you're spreading widely. Do you feel the severity of that? The Pharisees are treating the letter of the law as more important than the spirit of the law. And this is a consistent critique from Jesus. If you flip over to Matthew 23, another intense section of Scripture where Jesus declares seven woes of judgment upon the Pharisees. Let me give you just a sampling that applies to our text this morning. Matthew 23, 27 and following says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He'll say elsewhere that you have followed the letter of the law about tithing all the way down to your spice racks, but you have neglected justice, mercy, faithfulness, what we could call not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. See, they elevated the traditions of men with the word of God. And then secondly, what that means is that they encouraged hypocrisy and vain worship. Let's keep going in verse 6. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus is like, I have more receipts whenever you're ready. Many such things you do. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 29. He says, the spiritual state of the Pharisees and the scribes is not an issue of defiled hands but defiled hearts. They worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Do you see why this is an outside-in reality? Outside, Jesus says, you're very well polished, but inside, you're a tomb. You know what a tomb holds? Dead things. Outside, you look impressive. Inside, you're full of uncleanness. And he gives one practical example here of korban. This, this word literally means an offering in the Old Testament. It has the idea of denoting particular goods to the Lord. Uh, it's kind of like the concept of deferred giving today. So you might leave like a property or an inheritance or uh, something that you own to a charity or to a church or to an institution upon your death. But here's how they were using that. They were taking their home and their property and saying, I have dedicated this to the Lord. 
It is korban. That all sounds very spiritual and holy until you realize they were using it as a loophole to actually disobey God. Because now, here's what would happen. If a family member or your parents themselves came to you in need, quick sidebar, by the way, Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother has far more to do about how you honor your father and mother as an adult than when you're a child. And this is an instance when your parents are aging, when they need help, when they need assistance, and they come to you and ask, can you help? Now you would say, well, I would love to, but I'm so sorry. I have dedicated this to the Lord. And then you would turn them away. The son would retain control over the property as long as he was alive until he died, and then it would go over to the temple. But they take this concept and basically spiritualize what they're doing. They're disobeying the fifth commandments. They are baptizing their disobedience with religious language. They invoke God's name to avoid doing what God has commanded of them. And Jesus says, there's one example and many such things you do. And he calls them hypocrites. Jonathan Pennington has a fantastic commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. His definition here is helpful. He says, the Pharisees are described as hypocrites, but not in the same way that we usually use that term, meaning someone who says one thing but lives in a different way. No, they are hypocrites because they are not unified in heart and action. They're not unified inside and outside. They actually do the right things, but they are not the right kind of people because their hearts are wrong. Because righteousness is whole person virtuous living. For a religious community, the most serious potential opposite to this is not blatant immorality, but a skin-deep righteousness. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is only skin deep. An outside-in religious approach is only skin deep. All right, now let's step back again for a moment. Jesus is, has a scathing indictment of the religious leaders. He is so upset because they are those who claim to speak for God. They are to be a model and a teacher for the people, and they are hypocrites. Their internals and their externals are off. Now, hopefully, that provides some more context for what's going on here. So let's ask the more uncomfortable question, where might we be tempted to do the same things today? It's really easy to look at this kind of intramural Jewish debate and go, that's kind of weird. It seems like the Pharisees were pretty wrong. Okay. Now, let's ask the harder question. How might we slip into this kind of outside-in religiosity? Where might we even be honoring God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? One of the ways that we know that we do this is by doing what the Pharisees did, which was to add on to God's law, something that is not actually God's word. If you're uh, more of an older brother type here, that's me as well in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. The, the more self-righteous, the more uh, prideful in and of yourself end of the spectrum. Uh, this is probably more your tendency. If you're really good at seeing the sin of others, take a moment this morning and self-reflect. Pharisees were experts at the sin of others. They were easy and quick to point it out. But where are you adding on to God's law, expecting others to follow that, and then looking down on them when they do not? Jesus tells a parable, Luke, uh, about uh, two men who go to the temple to pray, and he says he tells this parable because there are some who consider themselves righteous on their own, 
righteous in and of themselves, and they look down with condescension upon others. Where are we putting up fence lines that God has not asked us to? But also at the same time, maybe for more younger brother types, and I think this is more the temptation today, where have we tried to soften what God's Word says? To ask it directly, where have we used spiritual language to baptize and bless our disobedience? Where have we said, God, I know what your word says about money, but I mean, we're in an inflation right now. Like, do you see how crazy things are? And then all of a sudden, we wiggle our way around what God asks. We can look at what God's word says about marriage and sexuality and say, yeah, but it's 2022, really? I don't know. And we begin to use language to baptize our disobedience. We can look at what God's word says about forgiveness and what it means to bear one another's burdens in the church, and we can say, yeah, but this situation just doesn't fit in that. Right? Where is it for you? Where is there a clear commandment of God that we are trying to wiggle our way around? That's the more uncomfortable reality, because when we do that, we're falling into this outside-in reality. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a jarring statement. Remember, scribes and Pharisees would have devoted their life to God's word and to teaching it. And Jesus has got this ragtag group gathered, and he says, listen, your righteousness had better be better than theirs. For them, they're like, I, I mean, I'm kind of done here. Like, there's no chance. There's no way I can follow those things in the way that they do. But Jesus is talking about a completely different paradigm. Their righteousness is skin deep. It's from the outside in. Your righteousness must be from the inside out. And that's where he takes them. Instead of an outside-in tradition, what we need is an inside-out transformation. Now, here's the thing. Jesus and the Pharisees do agree. They agree on this one thing. There's a problem of sin. There's a problem of uncleanness. They agree that that is an issue. Jesus is not saying, oh, no, everybody's clean. It's fine. No, no, he's very clear. Uncleanness is a problem. But they disagree on both the source and the solution. They disagree on the source of the uncleanness and the solution to the problem. He's telling you that the Pharisees have misdiagnosed the problem, right? Have you ever been sick and you're like, I don't know, I could go to the doctor, maybe not. You Google the symptoms and you go to this glorious website called WebMD, right? And you go on there and then all of a sudden it turns out you're dying. You're like, I, I mean, I'm gonna be dead soon. That's what WebMD does. 98% of the time, that's a misdiagnosis. And if you have a misdiagnosis, you'll never apply the right solution. The Pharisees had misdiagnosed that this was an external reality. So what did they do? They applied more external things. And Jesus says, no, 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 the source is internal, and you need to be made new internally. And this text is going to tell us both of those realities. So let's look at the source of our problem. Look at verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the closest thing that we get to ancient potty humor here from Jesus. Uh, He literally says, whatever you eat from the outside, it doesn't go into your heart, but it goes into your stomach and then it is expelled. Literally in the Greek, it goes into the toilets. He's saying these things externally never get to the heart. He's using food as an example here, but he means that outside in pursuit. The Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, listen, your disciples are defiled because they don't wash properly. And Jesus is saying that the source of uncleanness is not an exterior washing, but an internal rottenness. To put it plainly, Jesus is telling us the problem is not what's out there, the problem is what's in here. He lists all these actions and attitudes that come from within, not from the outside. This is why, again, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching and he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Ten Commandments, of course. Of course we've heard it said. Then he says, but I say to you, whoever even looks with lustful intent has what already committed adultery in their hearts. Jesus says, you heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, those of you who have hatred in your hearts for your brother, for your sister, you're already guilty. What's Jesus doing? He's getting back to the intent of the law, which is the heart. The issue is in the heart. There's another famous interaction that shows this between the Pharisees and Jesus. In fact, it's one Pharisee. It's Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is this Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus by night. He wants to have a theological conversation with him. He says, uh, teacher, we know that you're from God since you know, only God could do these things. Which is, it's not sure if it's like a question or like a conversation starter. Maybe Nicodemus was just awkward in conversation, but it's kind of like a non, like, where, where are we doing with that? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, unless someone is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing? He's taking the religious formalities and saying, you have to be born again. You have an internal problem. You need a new heart. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the heart is the center of life, the core of being, the place where manhood maintains its throne. And what a terrible statement that is, that out of the very center of life, there proceeds from man evil thoughts, wickedness, blasphemy, and the like. By the heart is meant mainly the affections, but it also includes the understanding and the will. It is, in fact, the man's vital self. Sin is not a thing ad extra that comes to us and afflicts us like robbers breaking into our house at night, but it is a tenant of the soul dwelling within us as in its own house. The evil worm has penetrated into the kernel of our being, and there it abides. Sin has intertwisted, it's not even a word, but I like it, intertwisted itself with the warp and woof of our nature. And none can remove it but the Lord God himself. As long as the heart remains unchanged, out of it will proceed that which is sinful. You see, when we realize the gravity of Jesus' words, we all have a problem, don't we? Outside-in righteousness can be maintained. It can be polished. It can look nice. An inside-out kind of righteousness is in trouble. And we know this, don't we, brothers and sisters? We're not right from the inside out. 
we all stand condemned. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active. It's a great verse about the word of God, right? We, we might even know it. You could quote it. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But do you know the next verse? And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. By the way, we're not giving an account for our outside indeeds. We're giving an account to the word of God that pierces our very soul and tells us what's going on at the heart. All of us have hearts that are stained by sin. And listen, no Tide pen, no shout, no OxyClean is going to do the trick. We might suppress the truth about what's in there, but we all have a nagging sense of this reality. We cannot distract ourselves away from it. And listen, some of us here have been involved in elaborate ways to try to scrub that stain clean, haven't we? I mean, the human heart is wired towards a little self-cleansing strategy. I mean, we use some elbow grease on this thing, right? We're white-knuckling our way through our religious life, thinking that deep down, ah, maybe this will deal with the stain that's inside, but they don't work because, brothers and sisters, you need a new heart. We do not need to become nicer. We need to become new. And the only way to get your soul cleansed like that is through not what you have done nor what you are doing, but what has been done for you. In fact, the only way to have your soul cleansed from its stain of sin is to look to another stain. The only way we are made clean is to behold a blood-stained cross 2,000 years ago outside the gates of Jerusalem. A picture of uncleanness, by the way. So what is the solution to our problem? Well, in one sense, it seems like it's beyond this text, right? But I think it's actually hinted at here. Stick with me. We're wrapping up. This is important. Mark here provides a rare, what we call, editorial comment. You'll notice in verse 19, he, he talks about how it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And there's a little parenthetical statement. Thus, he declared all foods clean. I don't think Jesus paused in the middle of his scathing indictment of the Pharisees and went, hey, by the way, all food's good, bacon, enjoy it. That's not what he's doing here. Mark is saying that when he's looking back, and really this is Peter, right, Peter telling Mark, he's looking back and realizing, oh, I get it. Jesus declares all foods clean. What in the world does that have to do with the solution? It's a great question. Just think about the last few chapters of Mark. Jesus has seemingly been breaking all sorts of cleanliness laws, hasn't he? And not just the ones in the Mishnah, I'm talking Leviticus. I mean, he's interacting with lepers and tax collectors and Gentiles and sinners. He's touched a woman with a chronic menstrual hemorrhage. He's been around dead bodies in multiple occasions and even touched one. And the Pharisees, this is all bubbling. You can see it, right? Because the outside in, I mean, when you start seeing people that are unclean and it just keeps stacking up, you're like, I mean, somebody's got to tell them, right? So finally, it gets to the moment, why are you defiled? What they're really asking is, Jesus, why do you and your people disregard the holiness of God? Do you take God lightly? You clearly don't take him seriously. But they have no idea who they're talking to. Jesus is not acting this way because he disregards those laws. No, Jesus is acting this way not because he's come to abolish the law, but because he's come to fulfill it. 
Jesus is trying to show them that all these ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were a signpost to him, to him. Because here's what's different about Jesus, God the Son in the flesh. When you come in contact with something unclean, the uncleanness was transferred to you. In Jesus, it flows the opposite direction. Jesus is the clean one. He is the pure one. And when he touches things unclean, rather than himself being infected, his holiness is contagious. His righteousness is contagious. It goes out into the world. Jesus is telling us, listen, all the ceremonial laws, they are an anticipation. They are setting the stage for a total and complete cleansing that is to come. And it only comes through the bloodshed of Christ. Hebrews 9 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, i.e., if you follow Leviticus, if that's enough to sanctify you, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, the ceremonial laws are pointing to the cross of Christ. When Jesus dies, that sacrificial death, that substitutionary death, Paul will tell us that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was clean became unclean on our behalf so we might be cleansed. And what happens after that crucifixion immediately? We'll get there in a couple of months, but the veil of the temple, the curtain in the temple, torn in two. The ritual laws that reminded us of the barrier between us and God, of our need for cleansing, has been removed in Christ. We have been cleansed. We have been made new. Our access to God restored because we have a perfect mediator, a perfect high priest who goes between. We have been made new in the gospel, and we are being made new. But he makes us new, brothers and sisters, from the inside out. He gives us a new heart. He indwells us with his spirit. The only hope for our stain of sin is trusting in that good news. So listen, if you're here this morning and you've been a hypocrite and your worship has been in vain, number one, please know you're not alone in this room. Secondly, trust in the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and your righteousness is only skin deep and it's outside in, trust in the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're currently involved in an elaborate self-cleansing scheme for your life, trust in the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and you have baptized disobedience with spiritual language, if you've been looking for loopholes around what God has asked you to do, Trust in the blood of Christ. Because friends, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Trust in the blood. Let's pray. Lord, we, like Isaiah, given a vision of your holiness, uh, know that we are unclean people, that we dwell in the midst of an unclean world. And what incredible truth it is that, Jesus, you have come 
to cleanse us. You have come to set us right. We know that you have washed us thoroughly from our iniquity. You have cleansed us from our sin, and you have done so at the expense of your own bloodshed. So Jesus, I I pray that we would repent, we would turn from all the self-cleansing strategies that we might be drawn to. But I pray that we would confess and that we would turn from an outside-in religiosity that has the appearance of godliness, but on the inside is full of deadness. And thank you that you are in the business of taking dead things and bringing life to them. Thank you that all who are in Christ are not nicer versions of who we are, but new creations in you. So Lord, where there are dead hearts in this room, may you enliven them and breathe life into them through the Holy Spirit because of the finished work of Christ. And for those hearts that have been changed, Lord, may you remind us of what it means to live in step with our new creation, with our new reality. Help us to see the kindness of Jesus turn from our sin and in a fresh way be full of gratitude for the ways that you've made us new. May we live our lives out of that security, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.